Hello, I'm Elena DelVal, and this is the HispanicNPR.com podcast. My guest today is Stephen M. Cohn, who is author of Rules for Whistleblowers, a handbook for doing what's right. We will discuss the new whistleblowing, Protect Yourself for Doing What is Right. Steve, an attorney specializing in whistleblower cases, co-founded the National Whistleblower Center in Washington, D.C., and is a founding partner of the law firm Cone, Cone, and Colapinto, LLP. According to his bio, Steve secured the largest tax whistleblower reward for Bradley Birkenfeld, who exposed the Union Bank of Switzerland's tax evasion. Successfully represented Howard Wilkinson, the whistleblower in the largest money laundering scandal in history involving Dansk Bank, and was instrumental in creating provisions in the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, Dodd-Frank Act, IRS Quitem Whistleblower Program, and the United States Whistleblower Protection Enhancement Act. He's the author of seven books. He's also a professor of whistleblower law at Northeastern University School of Law. Steve, welcome. Well, welcome and thank you so much for having me. What's a whistleblower? So the whistleblowers that we're talking about are people who are insiders and based on their inside knowledge have information about white collar crime, money laundering, tax evasion, the types of crimes that you need an insider to reveal because they're generally done in secret and often the victims don't even know the crime occurred. Now, a couple of the large whistleblower cases that I just mentioned in the intro are foreign companies, if I understand correctly, UBS, which is a Swiss company originally or entirely, and the Dansk Bank. Would you tell us a little bit about that? Where, where are the boundaries? Is it companies in the U.S., even though they might be foreign, or is it sort of the whole globe? Yes, so whistleblowing has radically changed, especially in the area of corporate accountability. And it's really transnational now. So there's a, a great whistleblower law firm, Money Laundering, and that's totally transnational. So the Donsky Bank case in which the bank was in Denmark, the branch was in Estonia, most of the dirty money came out of Russia, and it was transferred into New York banks, uh, you had jurisdiction. Uh, the UBS case, again, a Swiss bank, but they had U.S. clients with secret accounts evading tax. But in point of fact, the U.S. laws have pushed the bounds of transnational jurisdiction pretty much as far as they can because they don't want U.S. companies to be unfairly hindered because they have to follow the law while foreign companies don't. What is the profile of a whistleblower? Somebody's listening to us and thinking, well, there's some wrongdoing that I'm aware of, maybe in their company, maybe somewhere that they have access to the knowledge. Um, who is the person, personality-wise, if you would, that is 
likely to be a successful whistleblower? Because it's a difficult thing based on what you say in the book. It is not for the weak of heart. Exactly. So the typical whistleblower today really is unlike the media image. So for example, Edward Snowden, a name that comes readily to mind when people think of whistleblowing, that personality trait, that type of activity really is not relevant in the new cases. Because the new laws allow you to be anonymous and confidential, and they offer financial awards where a whistleblower can be compensated for their information, the type of person who's blowing the whistle is very different from, any, from, from all the preconceived notions. My clients are chief executive officers, chief financial officers, executive vice presidents. What I have found, they are often a person well-placed in a major corporation who has access to information about wrongdoing, who would never blow the whistle in normal circumstances. But once they understand they can be fully anonymous and confidential and they can financially obtain a significant award, they become a whistleblower. I also find that many of the corporate executives that I represent or bank managers, etc., they really want to do the right thing. But if you're making a lot of money and you have your friends in the company, why would you ever become a whistleblower? Why would you risk all of that? Well, these laws make taking that risk practical. It's not for everybody, but it makes it practical. And I will say this, because many of the awards are in the millions of dollars, and, and, and to many people, this is almost dumbfounding that a whistleblower can get a large amount of money and never suffer an employment detriment because no one even knows they blew the whistle. This is a whole new way of doing it. So the, the, the typical whistleblower now is someone within business who wants to do the right thing and discovers that there's a pathway where they can protect themselves and do what's right. So let's go back to where you started to explain to us the person that you named larger than life, even after all these years, Edward Snowden, it didn't go so well for him. It still hasn't gone so well for him. He's in exile under threat of arrest if he leaves Russia, right? Correct. So, so let's, let's look at it. So Snowden was an insider. He saw things that he thought were wrong, and he exposed them. But he exposed them outside of a protected legal process. And then the information he was revealing may have been in violation of federal laws. So from his perspective, he had no rights. He wanted to come forward. He took this massive risk. 
and he's suffered a lot of problems since. And he faces maybe years in prison if he ever returns to the United States. Now let's go look at the new whistleblower laws. So first, it creates a legal structure that's protective. So if you follow the pathway set forth in the law, not only are you going to be protected under the law, but retaliation is prohibited. It could be an obstruct, a criminal obstruction of justice if anyone goes against you or harms you. But more significantly, they have these really good provisions to protect anonymity and confidentiality. And basically, if the boss doesn't know who blew the whistle, then they don't know who to fire. So where Snowden went public and with massive publicity, these new whistleblowers are for the most part anonymous and confidential. All my major clients have opted for anonymity. So, so you see totally different structures. And then what's at the end of the rainbow? So for Snowden, he's looking at exile and prison. But for the whistleblower who comes in, say, under the money laundering laws or the anti-bribery laws, tax evasion, securities violations, they're looking at the prospect of getting a large, often multi-million dollar award. So you can see these two pathways are so radically distinct. The financial crimes is what I'm hearing you describe that are protected by the new laws. But would the new laws protect a Snowden-like figure today? Unfortunately not. So the way the United States has developed these new whistleblower laws is essentially addressing segments of the economy for which there was a bipartisan consensus. So there's one law for fraud against the government, government contracting procurement. It was easy consensus. Then there's a law for the Securities and Exchange Commission for publicly traded companies. Then there's a law for the commodity exchanges, which are gigantic, and you don't have to be publicly traded. Then you have the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, which is foreign bribery. And just in December, they did the anti-money laundering, bank secrecy, and sanctions. And so these rules under the Bank Secrecy Act are extremely broad, cover almost every bank in the world, definitely every U.S. bank, and there's 14,000 of them that are covered. So they, the, the, the large publicly traded economy worldwide is what has now been targeted. Uh, but government whistleblowers are outside of these protections. You mentioned that these laws protect people on the inside because they provide confidentiality and anonymity. Walk us through that, if you would, because I look at the world that we're in today, and it seems to me there isn't a lot of confidentiality and anonymity. Well, it's amazing. So... First off, there's a statute that requires it. It, requ it permits the whistleblower to file their claim anonymously, 
and then requires the government to conduct their investigations in a manner not to reveal the identity of the whistleblower. Uh, the way it works is kind of ingenious. For a whistleblower to be anonymous, they have to hire a licensed U.S. attorney who, like our firm, will generally work on a contingency basis, meaning you don't have to pay up front. Uh, so you need a licensed U.S. attorney, and that U.S. attorney acts as an intermediary between the government and the whistleblower. And it's the obligation of the U.S. attorney to inform the government, like, hey, this email could expose the identity of my client, uh, and to help the government understand what information may be sensitive, what they can use. Also, the government now has somebody they can hold accountable. So if there was any type of fraud or manipulation in the presentation of, of, of that whistleblower had was a fraudster. The lawyer can be held accountable for a lack of due diligence, even though the government doesn't know who that original whistleblower was. So this forces the lawyer to do a good job vetting the potential whistleblowers and presenting the case, all of which helps the government because they get the information in a higher quality manner. So this procedure has worked remarkably well. Uh, that's why we use it and we uh, advise all our clients not to be afraid of it. In point of fact, 65,000 whistleblowers have entered the securities program alone. 65,000. Unheard of numbers. Sorry, in and what time know... period? Pardon? In what time period? Since the law was passed in 2011. So between 2011 and today... 65,000 whistleblowers have entered the securities program, which includes foreign bribery. There's probably 6,000 non-U.S. citizens in, in the program. Uh, and I know of no case in which the identity of the whistleblower was revealed. So it's, it's unbelievable. It's working way better than anyone imagined. How do they make contact with the law firm? How do they have communications and maintain that anonymity? Sure. So my firm, as do others, you know, we have a website, so which from for my firm would be, you know, kkc.com. It's right out there. And if you plug in the word like whistleblower lawyer or something like that, my firm will come up along with others. There's because there's large awards, it's it's fairly it's it's I, I would say it's fairly easy to find a lawyer if you have a good case. So again, this is all new. It used to be like impossible for whistleblowers to find lawyers. Extremely difficult. Now, under these laws, they're out there, and, and that's how it is. So you can maybe through the book, through a newspaper through a news story, through a podcast, through uh, the internet, word of mouth, the word gets out. And then they reach out and send you an email? Would that sure. be the so first what, step? The, the way we do it, which is fairly typical, it, they'll, they'll contact us. Sometimes they'll contact us 
using a fictitious name like John Doe, or they'll just say they're anonymous. The moment they contact us, we take steps to ensure confidentiality, uh, meaning, you know, we make sure they're not using a corporate email address. They're not using a company cell phone. They're not using a government uh, instrument. Uh, often they will then set up separate email addresses so their names aren't obvious. We have, you know, we use super strong security measures within our office. Obviously, they're not fail-proof, but we've taken steps. But once you permit, uh, we also, you know, we'll do a lot of this stuff by Teams or on the phone. So the email communications don't necessarily need to identify the name of the whistleblower or even the company that that's being targeted. So uh, I think within reason, you can keep people's identities confidential and none of our clients have ever been uh, revealed uh, by us or by them. Uh, one had gone internally to a company, and then their identity was revealed through a company leak. Uh, but other than that, our, our clients have all been able to maintain confidentiality if they want to. The whistleblower can go public, and some do. They think it's in the public interest they want people to know what the issues are. So the whistleblower can go public, but the government can't. Do you meet them in person? I mean, how do you know, how do you vet them? How do you know that they're real people and that what they're saying is well-founded? Sometimes in person, but right now I have a very large number of clients who are international so you can use, we use Teams, which is generally considered of higher security than, say, Zoom or others. And the key is to review the information they have objectively. So these new whistleblower laws all focus on the quality of the information and whether they have actual evidence of some form of violation. These are not employment cases. So figuring out whether someone has actual evidence of a violation, it's not easy, but it, it's very doable. And, and for example, within our firm, we have a former commissioner of the SEC, Allison Lee, works with us, and she can easily vet all of the SEC or securities cases and commodities cases, gives us a heads up whether they have a claim before being a commissioner, she worked 17 years as an enforcement lawyer for the SEC. And all of us at the firm have like expertise in various areas. And mine now focuses on tax evasion, money laundering. And the new area that we're really getting some fantastic cases on, which is cryptocurrency. I was thinking about crypto as you said that. Yeah. Oh, let me tell you about crypto, which a lot of people don't know. So most cryptocurrency exchanges, and those are the businesses that can convert, say, a, a Bitcoin from a dollar to a Bitcoin, like I'll pay you fifty, uh, like $10,000 and I'll buy a Bitcoin. These are known as money exchanges. They are covered under the money laundering and bank secrecy laws. 
are regulated by FinCEN, among others, uh, and uh, there's been some major enforcement actions against them, and I can tell you right now there's going to be a lot more. Well, of course, the big case that's in the news right now is the, I don't know, is that like potentially the largest crypto-related case, or does it get bigger? Uh, I, I, I can't really speak to that. I can tell you from what I see coming in, they'll get bigger. Uh, again, I can't speak to it directly, but our cases generally can take a couple of years to investigate. So we'll get the information, and if it's really hot, you know, we give it to the government, then we can speak to the Justice Department or the Treasury Department, and we'll get a very good idea as to how this investigation is going, and uh, we take it from there. We keep all of the information confidential in terms of the investigation. We will do nothing to interfere with the government's investigation, least of all tell someone what we've given the government, which would tip off the crooks. So we're essentially working very closely with the government in order to ensure that their investigations can really proceed. So we will have like an insight into, in, into enforcement actions often years before it goes public. One of the things that struck me when looking at the exchanges and, well, the world that is cryptocurrency is that many of these seem to be offshore with only a little bit of their business in the U.S. or involving Americans. What can you tell us about that and the conversation we're having? Sure. So the problem that the cryptocurrencies have is that they often have a lot more Americans than they may even be aware of, uh, just by the nature of the business. So once they have U.S. contacts, sufficient U.S. contacts, there's going to be federal jurisdiction. But in the Donsky Bank case, and, and, and I think this is also going to come around, Donsky had no ties whatsoever to the United States, none. Uh, okay, they had some, but they had no branches, no employees, anything you generally would look at to find federal jurisdiction, they didn't have. However, they permitted their money, the, the dirty Russian money, to enter the U.S. market by transferring the money from their bank to banks in New York. So they got whacked by the Justice Department for, I think, a billion dollars for permitting dirty money to enter the American markets. And the premise of that was their failure to have adequate money laundering protections. So to say, make a long story short, the United States is looking to expand transnational jurisdiction over the enforcement of international financial crimes. Therefore, I do believe that many of these cryptocurrencies and the, the exchanges will be sanctioned. And I also think that it's kind of temporary right now. I think that the world of crypto will, will 
figure out that they're covered. And no matter what they do, they may be covered. Like one of the, I think one crypto exchange, they, they were sanctioned, I think it was $100 million by FinCEN. They had on their website that they no U.S. people could participate in their exchange. But they had hundreds of U.S. people. So I think that as crypto matures, they're going to figure out that they're covered under money laundering and bank secrecy, that trying to avoid the U.S. markets to avoid compliance with the law is probably a dead end, and that they'll uh, create and implement the types of compliance procedures that will make crypto an honest market. That's the goal. What would make crypto an honest market? Help us understand that, because I think sure. th this so, is such oh, a that's hot a topic. Great question. Yes. So uh, the the thumbnail sketch on the Bank Secrecy Act is three things. First, the banks, and this would include the the crypto exchanges have a requirement to what's known as know your customer. So they're supposed to do due diligence when a customer is taken on. Is, are they out of Russia? That might be a red flag. You know, how did they get their money? Uh, they're supposed to figure that out. So they're, so, and if this potential client is suspicious, they have to do even more investigation before they open up the account. So that's know your customer. Second, you are required to report any suspicious activity of $5,000 or more. So if someone sees, say, a, a money transaction going from Paris into Russian-occupied Ukraine, that's going to be a suspicious activity. And uh, they are then required to report that. Uh, and if it's a U.S.-based one, which most should consider themselves U.S.-based, they have to report it to the U.S. Department of Treasury, do a suspicious activity report confidentially. They don't, they don't tell their customer that they've turned them into the feds, but they're required to do it, which could trigger an investigation. Third, and this is big for tax evasion, it's you must know the true beneficial owner. So a lot of tax evasion occurs when someone creates a trust or some form of entity that hides who, whose money it is. The Panama Papers, which was a gigantic scandal, was all about law firms in Panama creating structures to hide whose money it was. So if you're engaged in tax evasion, if you're accepting a bribe, you know, you don't want to put the money in an account in your name. So you, so the, that, that's really at the heart of, uh, of money laundering is hiding beneficial ownership. So between those three things, if crypto and other banks adhered to these laws, you could really keep dirty money out of the financial systems. So that is why they passed the Money Laundering Act 
and they and we got through these really good whistleblower provisions just in December of 2022. And our biggest argument was Russian oligarchs and how they engage in money laundering, how they were hiding assets in hiding their beneficial ownership. And if you wanted to track down the wealth of the oligarchs, do this whistleblower law and let the insiders, the bankers, the real estate agents, their financial planners, give them the right to get an award and report these thugs uh, confidentially. When you go to open an account with a bank, one of the things they ask you is, do you conduct your business in bank, I'm sorry, in cash? And do you deal in, I think it was marijuana, do you have a marijuana business? Is this linked to this anti-money laundering or is this something unrelated? Well, it's related and unrelated directly. So I'll explain that one. It's a great question. So first, any time you open up a bank account now, uh, you're going to have to comply with these advanced know your customer. Like we just opened one up ourselves. I've been doing the banking with this bank for 20 years. Yet to open a new account, I had to send them photocopies of my driver's license. I had to prove my identity, et cetera, et cetera. This is there, but the marijuana is an entirely separate issue. So what is going on there is because marijuana is, I think, a class one felony or a class one drug uh, by the federal law, that means uh, it's, it's classified like heroin and it's under tight restrictions. And it means that for purposes of tax, this is really interesting, you can't expense, you can't write off your business expenses. And a bank can get in trouble if they take deposits in money that was earned through the sale or distribution of a class one drug. So the banks don't want the cash because they're not allowed to. They could get in trouble. But the tax evasion part is even bigger because like if you if you open a business, right, and say your business takes in a million dollars in gross revenue and of that million dollars, you pay nine hundred thousand in rent, employees, supplies. You're taxed on your $100,000 profit. So, okay, that's fine. But if you can't expense any of those costs, you'd be taxed on the full $1 million in gross revenue. So you can see where that really causes a problem for uh, marijuana dispensaries. Like, how do you get around this tax issue? How do you get around the banking issue? So therefore, they have lots of cash, which creates its own problems. And that's one of the reasons why there's the big push in Congress to uh, change that law and lower the uh, classification of marijuana. Because today, there's this massive conflict between states that are legalizing it and the federal government, which has classified it equal to heroin. How do these businesses stay in business without a bank 
to put their money. Yeah. It's funny. I was at a conference just last week, and the guy talked about one of these growers, uh, and it was all cash. They had safes in which they had t- hundreds of thousands of dollars in. They paid everyone in cash. And it was like, I, I just sitting back and saying, whoa, you know, did they file their 1099s? Did they do the deductions? It's, I mean, how many security guards do they have? It's like, uh, you know, it's created problems. We'll put it that way. And uh, I don't think that the IRS is aggressively enforcing these tax laws right now, but uh, we'll see what happens as it pans out. But I think it is, if you're in that business right now today, there's a strong chance <coughs> there's, there could be extensive liability. Wow. But that, but if I'm understanding you correctly, is not specifically related to the anti-laundering laws. It just happens to be sort of caught in the middle because of all of these rules. Well, and- but, but then it comes in this, right? So first of all, the bank has to know their customer. So if they know it's a marijuana dispensary, they may not want to open the account to begin with. Second, uh, any suspicious activity of 5000 or more. So if someone walks in with $10,000 in cash to deposit, believe me, that is a suspicious activity. It will be reported. So all of a sudden, someone who now, by knowing the customer, operates a marijuana dispensary and they've just deposited, you know, 25000 in cash, all that gets reported to the federal government. That takes the bank off the hook. The bank is liable if they don't make those reports. But now the federal government has all that information. Whether they decide to prosecute or conduct an investigation, entirely separate issue. But the banks are liable under these money laundering laws. So are the underlying crooks, but the fines and penalties that a bank can be uh, can suffer are very, very large. One thought that comes to mind as we're having this kind of fleshing it out is recently there's been an issue with the solvency, if you will, or the strength of our banking system. And I've seen a number of experts in finance recommend that people keep cash because if there is a bank run and the bank is shut down, nobody really knows what will happen. We haven't had anybody test the FDIC or if you're looking at the brokerage companies, the vanguards and so forth, that have so much money there, if something happens to one of those companies and they go under, nobody really knows what will happen to our country, how hard and fast things will crumble. So these advisors that are recommending that people have cash on hand, I've even heard people talk about having gold on hand, how does that come into the equation? Well, you know, from a whistleblower perspective, it really doesn't. You know, the the whistleblower is reporting the crime. So having cash is not against the law. You know, if you're engaging in a lot of it, maybe the banks will submit a suspicious activity report 
on you, but it won't go anywhere if, you know, you have, if, if it's all lawful. Uh, you know, so, so that's outside of it. In terms of banks going insolvent and, say, not being able to pay, again, but this is where the whistleblower would come in. Banks are required to have certain amounts of assets. If the bank didn't, the whistleblower could clearly report that, and that bank would be sanctioned. So if banks are violating any of the federal rules and regulations required for getting FDIC insurance, they can be held totally liable. Now, if you go back to the financial crisis of 2008, we filed a case using this very theory, and it worked. Uh, it was against J.P. Morgan, and it worked really well. And our whistleblower made, you know, got a good award. And this was, and again, there's a lot of regulations out there, but the regulation, the banks had federal insurance on their mortgages. And the regulation said before you can foreclose, you had to try to negotiate with the person who was going to be foreclosed and uh, try to mitigate and, and not do a foreclosure. So this clearly served the public interest by keeping people in their homes. However, the banks found it profitable just to foreclose people quickly because they could get their money from the feds. So we filed a lawsuit on that, and we won. And uh, the federal government picked up on that theory and filed a whole slew of lawsuits and collected large amounts of money from these banks for failure to follow that regulation. And the same thing would go for any rule or regulation that a bank is required to comply with in order to protect the, their investors, to protect account holders, and also to ensure that the United States doesn't have to bail them out. So there's a lot of rules out there, and we just sit around. We wait for someone to, to come in, say a banker, an executive, and if they have information that this financial institution is violating those laws, we file. What about retaliation? So retaliation is a big deal. So first is if, if they don't know who you are, they can't retaliate. So the anonymity and confidentiality is well recognized as the number one protection against retaliation. And that, is, that goes for not just your name, but the government now can't use information that will fingerprint you. Because often, it, when, if the government just turned the whistleblower's information immediately over to, say, the company, the company will figure out who it was. So, for example, in a gigantic case we did uh, in which we had some super hot documents, I mean super hot, but the people who had access to them was a small group. The government went, as part of their investigation, subpoenaed hard drives of uh, various executives. And guess what? They found that smoking gun email through their subpoena. Oh, my God, it's in that hard drive. So in this way, our client was never fingerprinted. They could just sit back and say, oh, my God, the big, mean government is sure being oppressive uh, and, and escape visibility. So 
Anonymity is number one. Number two is we have fought for years and we have prevailed on the issue of non-disclosure agreements. So they're void in, our, in all of our cases. And we love it. If someone signs a non-disclosure agreement, we just give that to the federal government as evidence of obstruction of justice, cover-up. Uh, they're completely non-enforceable under any of our laws. And But what occurs then is the company may get a false, a false idea that somehow by making a employee sign an NDA, they're silencing that employee, when in fact the exact opposite is true. Many of our clients all have NDAs, and they come to us with an NDA, and we tell them, let's file. The NDA just helps your case. It shows the company's trying to hide something. So we can wipe out the NDAs, we can keep people anonymous, and then you have now a much smaller subset of, of people who face retaliation. There are good employment laws in the corporate context, Sarbanes-Oxley, Dodd-Frank, they have some decent laws, but our goal is to never use them. If, if those laws have to be used, something went wrong. And so far, so good. In other words, we've never had to use a retaliation employment protection law in the case of one of our clients who proceeded anonymously and confidentially. We've been able to work with the government, with the client, to protect them. I mean, I've had people serve in the uh, like as an executive vice president of a large multinational corporation for five years while they're being a whistleblower. Doesn't it eventually reach a point where their identity is revealed? No, in, in pretty much no case. Now, we have had one case in which the uh, whistleblower had to testify in court. The, the fraudster went to jail for 20 years. Uh, but in that case, they already kind of knew who the whistleblower was and the whistleblower didn't mind. It already found a new job. You know, so it was okay. Uh, it didn't cause any problems. But the government is supposed to construct their case in a way that you will not need the whistleblower to ever appear in court. They get other witnesses. They get the documents through their own subpoena process. So the goal is the whistleblower would never have to testify. Under the law, if they're needed to be identified under constitutional provisions, either they have to testify to a grand jury or there's this doctrine in law known as Brady, where a company or an individual has a right to learn who the witnesses are against them, then the name may have to be produced. In other words, the whistleblower confidentiality rules don't trump a defendant's constitutional right to know who the witnesses are. So the only way then to protect the whistleblower is to get the government to construct a case in which our whistleblower never becomes a witness. And that happens in almost every case. And a lot of the cases settle. Uh, essentially, if you think it through, if a whistleblower walks in and has the real good evidence of a corporate crime, 
and the government is able to use that to build a really good case, the company or the individuals are going to plead guilty because having that insider is often the, the, the critical element to show the intent and uh, uh, to, to make a really strong case. Well, in, in the case of those whistleblowers that are outed by the process or that choose to go public, part of the challenge, I imagine, is that finding employment is going to be difficult. Is that right? Uh, Yes. So if you're fired for being a whistleblower, that's not a good place to be. Uh, The U.S. Supreme Court just heard oral argument in a retaliation case yesterday. We filed what's known as a friend of the court brief. We've been monitoring it very carefully. It's under the Sarbanes-Oxley Act. So Congress made a, put the burden on the companies. And, and it was a, it's a fantastic law because it makes it much easier for the whistleblower to win their case. So the Chamber of Commerce, and this has actually turned out to be UBS, their U.S. affiliate, by coincidence, they went to the Supreme Court and they tr- they've argued to get rid of that standard so it's easier to fire, fire a whistleblower. Uh, I thought the, the judges were sympathetic to the whistleblower side, and uh, I, I think and we're hoping that this case goes the right way. So, so, the, the, so in terms of directly answering your question, We've worked very hard to create legal precedent and and standards that make it easier for a whistleblower to win their case in court. Uh, And as I say, the Chamber of Commerce has challenged that. We'll find out in three or four months what the verdict is. But uh, I'm guardedly optimistic. What steps can potential whistleblowers take what should they, what knowledge should they have? What steps should they take to follow, to figure out, first of all, if they have the goods, if the case they have is good enough for the kind of whistleblowing case we're discussing? Sure. So the first step, which is the most important step, is to learn your rights before before you blow the whistle. You may not want to go internally where you might get exposed. Uh, You may have information that can earn you millions of dollars. Uh, You may have no protection whatsoever under the law, and if you blow the whistle, you're going to be out in the cold. So the first step is to know what your rights are, which is the reason why I wrote Rules for Whistleblowers, because it lays out very clearly how to figure out whether or not you have a claim. Uh, And for all of the really good laws, we have a specific rule on each one. So if you work, if you're reporting bribery or money laundering or securities violations, you can look at that and really figure out whether you're in or out. Uh, It covers every whistleblower law, but has special emphasis on the important ones, the ones that you can really win and do a you know, the ones that Congress did the right thing, the ones that you can end up getting an award versus like Mr. Snowden and end up in big trouble. 
So that's the first thing. Know your rights. Second is if you're going to blow the whistle, really consider being anonymous and confidential. And that's rule number one in the book. Be confidential. If they don't know who you are, you can't be retaliated against. That's the second thing. The third thing is to obtain the documentation legally, legally obtain the documentation you need to convince a lawyer to take your case or to convince the government to prosecute. So I have specific rules about obtaining documents, taping, uh, and procedures that you may go through to try to get evidence. And these are questions that come up in almost every whistleblower case we do. Can I use this? What if I did this? Can I take the document? Can I tape? Uh, you know, so that's so doc get get the evidence you need to win, protect your identity, know your rights. What kind of timeline are we talking about? Well, the timeline is uh, I, I have to be honest with that. If it's a really big case, and those are the ones you want. It's going to be five years, three to six, because if you're initiating the investigation, you just have to think how long will it take for the government to put the case together in the old days where they could just like if you had a smoking gun email and you gave it to the government and the government turned around the next day and gave it to the company. Yes, you'd get a faster prosecution, but they'd know who the whistleblower was. You get fired. So. The anonymity and confidentiality provisions do slow down the investigations. Okay, but there's a cost benefit there because if no one knows who you are, the delay doesn't, isn't really as catastrophic. That if you're fired and there's a five-year delay, you know, you're out of work, you're suffering economically. So it's going to take time. Uh, on the other hand, sometimes a whistleblower brings in information that contributes to an ongoing investigation. And in most cases, they can fully qualify for an award. May not be as large that if you triggered the investigation, but you can still get an award. So we had a case, you know, the, 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 clearly that investigation had been going on for a couple of years, and we came in with some really strong evidence. We didn't know at the time that that evidence would be critical. And that case got wrapped up super fast. So uh, you just don't know how the government is going to react. We've also had cases where they've sat on stuff and like two years later, they decide they're going to start an investigation. Maybe someone else came in with evidence, priorities changed, you know, they don't tell us. But uh, if you keep your confidentiality, the delay is mitigated. Is there a risk to the whistleblower that by remaining in that environment, they themselves could be charged as complicit? Well, that's the, actually the good news is many whistleblowers are complicit. In other words, even a banker who, say, uh, opened up accounts for people hiding their identities, you know, for tax evasion, they can be uh, they can be liable. So coming in voluntarily as a whistleblower 
is one of the best assurances that you won't be held liable. But once you reveal yourself as a whistleblower and remain in, there's no liability there. You're essentially just like a confidential informant. And the government loves it. The government wants the whistleblower not to be identified. They want the whistleblower to remain working and gathering more evidence. So the interest of the government and the whistleblower are completely aligned. And while they're working in that white collar crime situation, they're just an incredible source. Uh, obviously, you can quit your job anytime you want. But I tell you right now, the government loves it when you're in, on the inside. And they also will be nice to you, even if you uh, uh, committed some form of violation before you came in. You don't, you don't, get, it, you don't get immunity. But the, most government investigators understand, you know, you don't shoot the goose that lays the golden egg. Six years of this position of whistleblower must be very stressful other than wanting to do the right thing, which you mentioned earlier. How much of a financial incentive, how much of a role does a financial incentive play and what are we talking about money-wise? Sure. So that's, again, it's a fantastic question because most of our whistleblowers come in and they want to do the right thing. They want to report it. But after a year or two, they're really more focused on the financial compensation because, you know, it's, it is stressful. Uh, so the way the compensation works is it's generally 10 to 30 percent of whatever the government collects. Consequently, it becomes to the whistleblower's advantage to work closely with the government and help them because the bigger the prosecution, the bigger the award. So if it's a $100 million sanction, the whistleblower must get $10 million and can get as much as $30 million. So, but if it's a $2 million sanction, you can get 200000 to 600000 so believe me, so the whistleblowers, they, they figure this out. And over time, they understand that a case that takes a long time to put together generally means a much larger payout. That's why you like in the Birkenfeld case, our whistleblower was given a check for one hundred and four million dollars, one hundred and four million, because that amount was based on the mandatory percentage. And that's what's nice about these new, really good whistleblower laws. The agencies cannot, must give an award they, if you're qualified. They cannot deny an, deny an award to an unqualified person. Second, the award must be between 10 to 30% of whatever the company pays in fines and penalties. So it's a, it's a great deal for the whistleblower, and it's an incentive to be patient. What are the biggest challenges that you see in relation to this whistleblowing issue? Okay, so you've hit one of them, which is the delay factor. 
We are trying, you know, we, they need to put more resources on these cases. Uh, they need to be more cognizant of how the delay can really, you know, interfere with a whistleblower's life uh, and the stress it puts them under. So the delay combined with the resource issues. Uh, I mentioned, like, there's so many people coming into the programs, but they really, they're not even close to having enough investigators to, to look at, you know, great cases. I mean, we, we see what's happening, and we see some great cases. You can't even open an investigation because they're just overwhelmed. So, you know, it's amazing that you have such a, you know, uh, great response and the government's getting a lot of good evidence, and they're doing really good prosecutions, but they could literally be doing 20 times more. So delay and, and its sister, uh, which is lack of prosecutors. The second biggest issue, in our view, is the technical requirements of laws, often required by regulation. So... A lot of these agencies put together rules to qualify for an award that are really more geared for the agency's efficiency as opposed to the realism of what it's like to be a whistleblower. Filing requirements, forms you have to fill out, sometimes very tight deadlines. So you do see cases where otherwise qualified whistleblowers get denied because they didn't follow uh, some of the technical rules. And again, you can understand because, you know, the government's handing out a lot of money. Uh, they're, they're not like, we love whistleblowers, give them all the cash. No, they're bureaucrats. And uh, you got to, you know, that's the game. And that's a, another reason why when I say know your rights, know your rights up front. Because if you decide to go on your own and just start blowing the whistle, not only may you blow your identity, but you may miss deadlines and filing requirements that will, you'll end up not obtaining an award, not because you didn't do the right thing, but because you didn't follow the procedures. And that drives me absolutely crazy. So dot your I's and cross your T's, you're saying. Is yeah, because you have to think about it. Whistleblowing under these new financial laws, first, your job could be worth millions of dollars in income long term. But second, you may obtain 50 million bucks. But it's like, you know, so you've got to make sure you do it right. Because if you don't, it could be catastrophic. And the worst catastrophe is if you are a legitimate whistleblower, but you mess up the filing requirements and the deadlines. I mean, they have an ironclad rule right now at the SEC about your deadline for filing an award application. If you miss it by one day, you will not get a penny, period. And they've never waived it. What can potential whistleblowers, people who want to better understand this issue, other than reading your book, what else can they do to prepare to sure. decide so, whether it's for yeah. them? So, 
So what we have done, and just so you know, is like we've started, I've been doing this for 40 years. We have my firm, but we also have a nonprofit, the National Whistleblower Center. And we even have a newspaper online called Whistleblower Network News. All of the websites for these three entities have tons of information, uh, all free of charge, frequently asked questions. The Whistleblower Network News can keep you up to date on like developments in the law. So there's a lot of free information. Uh, the other thing is uh, for the Rules for Whistleblowers book, I worked with my firm specifically to create a free of charge online whistleblower law library tracked to every rule every statute is available free online the major cases the faqs so whether you know you get the book or not or you ever use us you can literally go online free of charge read the laws read the regulations look at the legislative history and this is open to lawyers across the country, clients across the country, all free of charge. And it was designed to be essentially the back end of the rules book. So the book doesn't have to be as complicated as it could be as a more you know, cold legal text. But if you look at it and say, oh, I might qualify for this, you can go straight to the law library, click, read the statute or read the reg or find the precedent. So we've done what we can do to try to educate the public uh, and push these laws forward. Stephen, thank you for joining us from Washington, D.C. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was a great conversation. Your questions were fantastic, and I'm looking forward to listening to it myself. It's great. You did a really good job. Thank you. Thank you. And to our audience, you have been listening to Stephen M. Cohn, who is author of Rules for Whistleblowers, a handbook for doing what's right, who discussed the new whistleblowing, protect yourself for doing what is right. To propose a guest for the show, you can email me directly at editor at hispanicmpr.com. That's editor at hispanicmpr.com.